Good to see everyone. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. It's such a pleasure to be able to sing with you and uh, be with you this morning. Hey, y'all, I can't not say this because they're right up front, but uh, Kevin and Bentley got engaged. <laughs> hey, that's, a, that's about as good of a reaction as I could have hoped. So, hey, we love y'all. We're so excited for, for you and praise God for you. You're such an encouragement to our church body and we love you both. Such a joy to see you this morning. So, yeah. So no more screams the rest of the time. All right, you got it out. Um, well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Haggai. If you weren't with us last week and you're wondering, like, where in the world is Haggai? Why are we there? Um, so if you grab your Bible or a chair Bible, if you find Matthew, it's the first book in your New Testament, and you go back to the left in the Old Testament, about three books, you'll find Haggai. It goes Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. I don't have the page number in the chair Bibles. But we have been in a series, we're actually finishing the series next week, of three small books from the Old Testament called Big Help from Little Books. And this is the third of the books, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. I hope you have been encouraged by God's grace and studying some little lesser-known places in Scripture. Uh, and I mentioned last week, you know, at least part of the reason we're doing that is to demonstrate our belief pastorally as well as just practically for us as people that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, for teaching, for correction, reproof, and uh, to help us grow in godliness and equip us for every good work. So with that, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 in just a moment. Um, just a quick maybe word of introduction. I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but there are times in life where you look back on yesterday with a sense of fondness, like you wish you had what yesterday had. So maybe just a funny example of this would be if as you're getting older, like for me, I still play basketball, but my, my feet don't work as fast as my brain do at this point in life, like they did 20 years ago. And so I can long for like, man, I wish I was 25 again, because I'd be playing a lot different than I'm doing right now. I wouldn't hurt near as much. And so you can look at previous seasons with a sense of longing, you know, like there's a Beatles song called Yesterday, kind of unpacks this a little bit. Like you long, you look back at yesterday, like, hey, things were so easy back then, and and there's, there's part of this text that kind of gives this depiction of there's a, there's a former type of glory, there's a former picture, namely of the temple, then there's a later version of glory, and there's this kind of struggle between the two. And so I can introduce that as a little bit of like a, a structure around the text, because you'll definitely see it as a, a theme as we jump in. But I pray you've been helped. Uh, last week I did a little bit more of a, probably one of the longer introductions I've ever done in sermon preaching in ministry, as we looked at a little bit more of the structure of the Old Testament. I don't have time to do all that today, but here's just a quick kind of bird's eye view. When you pick up the 39 books in the Old Testament, you, you can't read them thinking they read chronologically from end to end. So the 39 books in the Old Testament, you have to pull out of those basically 11 books. So those 11 books create the whole timeline of the Old Testament, from creation to what we kind of know as a silence period right before the New Testament. And so all the other 28 books fall within the timeline created by those 11 books. So Genesis, Exodus, Number, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Those are the 11 books make up the whole timeline for the Old Testament. Every other book, whether it's poetry or prophecy, falls within the timeline of those 11 books. You can kind of picture that a little bit. So where Haggai falls 
is in a period called the, the return period, where the, the nation of Israel, uh, having been conquered by foreign powers, was in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and they're now returning by way of God's kindness through a Persian king named Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed along with Jerusalem, and the book of Nehemiah develops a rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The book of Ezra is the rebuilding of the temple. And Haggai comes on the scene in the book of Ezra to encourage the people of God to take back up the work that they started early on in the book of Ezra. So what I mentioned last week, really the main idea was that basically we can forego spiritual priorities in order to pursue selfish things. And so there's a way in which Haggai is addressing that. So for four, they started the building of the temple. They laid a foundation. There was an altar and then they stopped. And what initially was maybe a legitimate pause because of opposition and the like turned into really illegitimate delay. And so they're like, nah, now's the right, not the right time to do this, to rebuild. We'll, we'll do it later. And meanwhile, it sat incomplete for 14 years. And so Haggai comes in, as well as Zechariah, to tell them, encourage them, start the work back up, rebuild regain a sense of your priorities. And, and very much so, the rebuilding of the temple was emblematic for the res restoration of the people's relationship with God. And so that's where we find ourselves. So chapter one, Haggai comes, he preaches, he confronts them on that issue, they repent, they obey God, they're walking in fear, they begin to rebuild. And chapter two starts about a month later from what we heard in chapter one, all right? So if you want more, more details on our resource page or some of those Old Testament slides, you can take a look at those if those are helpful. They're, they're there for your using if, if you find it uh, helpful to you. But let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll pray after we do that. All right, this is God's word for us, and this is, this is what it says. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. That's all the people, the Jewish people who had returned back to Jerusalem. They're called the remnant. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me pray. Uh, God, having read your word, I pray that your word would do its work in our lives. Um, 
we rightly come with a sense of expectation to your word that it will shape us once again today. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It's a two-edged sword that cuts through the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and leads us in paths of righteousness. And God, we need your help. And we need your help to break through hardness in our hearts. We need you to um, give us humble hearts that receive correction where we need it. And God, we need your help to continue to, to build, as it were, our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. Thank you, Jesus, for your um, immeasurable sacrifice that you have given us what we could never attain through our own effort. Thank you that you've forgiven us, you've adopted us, and that through the power of the Spirit that you left with us, you've given us the ability to walk lives that please you. And I pray, just as I prayed last week, that our lives as individuals and as a church would be unmistakably Christian, submitted to you, submitted to your word, walking in obedience and walking in fear and in reverence of awe and awe of you because you are worth it. We love you. We thank you for this time. I pray that you'd shape us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So as I mentioned, the beginning of chapter two starts about a month later from what we, what we saw last week. So this is the second of some sermonettes in this section. So the, the book, you can find kind of points of sermons or sermonettes with the, the word of the Lord came to Haggai or through Haggai. This is another one of those. So he's delivering the word of God to the people of God, ultimately for the, the glory of God to be increased in their lives as they take seriously their call to be his people distinct from the world and namely in the task of rebuilding the temple. So rebuilding the temple, as I mentioned, is emblematic of their relationship with God being restored. And so it was a place where the where God dwelt in their midst, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but it was really a renewed commitment to spiritual priorities. And it seems like what, what's kind of silently said here is there might be like a temptation that Haggai is addressing. So having gone now like a few weeks, maybe a month into the work of rebuilding, he seems to be addressing maybe some potential reasons why they might stop all over again, why they might give in again to like, ah, no, nah, not yet. It's not quite time. There's, stuff, there's other stuff to do where there's opposition. And so whether it's that or whether it's maybe the discouragement or complaint that might rise up, God speaks to his people through his prophet Haggai. Here's the main idea I want to give to you this morning. And, and it's this. Be strengthened by the presence of God today and his promises for tomorrow. Because there is a, a real life today encouragement in the, the message that comes from Haggai in the today moment for these who heard his message at the first. There's a real life today encouragement. The presence of God is with you if you're his and you're following him. And the second is true as well. There's an encouragement and a deep sense of strengthening that comes with God, God's promises from or for tomorrow. So the first, be strengthened by God's presence for today. So um, Haggai speaks to the same group of people. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. Joshua is the high priest, and then all the people. And he speaks to them, drawing attention to what seems to be maybe a potential negative reaction of some of these people who are working on the temple. So go back to the text. When you look at verse 3, he asks these questions. Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So God seems to be drawing attention to the negative reaction of some of the Israelites. 
Namely, there was, there was some. So of all the people who were returning, there was a smaller cross-section, you could say of older Jews who were returning, who had seen the previous temple. They'd seen Solomon's temple and all of its glory, and now they're wrestling because this one doesn't seem as great. And so he's, he's kind of dipping down. He kind of sees into their hearts, and he speaks to that tension. And in Ezra chapter 3, as I mentioned, Haggai comes into view through the book of Ezra, which is the rebuilding of the temple. It's one of those historical books. It's the second to last one. And so what we see in Ezra is when they rebuilt the foundation of the temple, there was this huge celebration, but there was something else present that helps us understand a little bit what's going on in Haggai. But let me read from Ezra chapter 3. So this first part captures the celebration. Verse 10, chapter 3, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments and fancy outfits came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's a celebration. But here's what happens, verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So the old folks in the midst of Jerusalem who had seen Solomon's temple, their reaction to the foundation is to weep. They're sad because there's this comparison of of glory, as it were. So I don't know if any of you had the experience of like moving from one house to the next, and if that move was like a downgrade. Anybody had that experience? I did when I was like 12 years old. So when I was like 10 to 12 years old, we lived in southern Illinois, and we had this house in the country. Uh, we had a horse that I tried to ride, not successfully. Uh, we, had a, we had a pond. We had like a go-kart at one point. We had like two and a half acres. It was just awesome. It was like a 10-year-old's dream. We had a pool. And my dad was in a different place financially with his job at that point. And so something happened with his job where we had to make a massive downgrade in our house to our next home. We didn't have any of those things. We had a house, which is great. We had a family of seven. We didn't have a pool, didn't have a pond, didn't have a pony, didn't have a go-kart. And so for me, it was like, man, this is like the former house I used to live in is so much better than this is a little bit like what's happening right now. Those who saw the former temple looked at the foundation and the rebuilding that was happening like, man, this is, this is not like Solomon's house. And they cried, like even just when the foundation was present, because it felt like there was a statement being made in the physical glory that the glory of God was also absent. But there's no mistaking, it seems historically, that the beauty of the temple built by Solomon was profoundly greater than the one built by Zerubbabel at this point in history. It lacked the detail, precious materials, and overall splendor of the former temple, but more significant than the difference in building materials was the fact that there was an absence of what many have come to refer as the Shekinah glory. It's a complicated word, but basically captures that throughout the Old Testament, God physically, visibly manifested his presence with the people of Israel. 
And his glory was seen. So it was seen in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt with the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was there on Mount Sinai. The glory of God covered the mountain as he spoke and thunder clapped and earthquakes and his glory was present there and it dwelt on Mount Sinai. You see that in Exodus chapter 24. I talked last week about really the first version of the physical temple was the tabernacle, this, this peculiar tent that was set up by God's people, by God's direction in the book of Exodus. This is what we hear about the tabernacle in verse 34, chapter 40. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we keep moving. Now Solomon's temple. You see it in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It said, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The significance of this is that this type of visible glory is absent from this new temple. But there are some who have seen the previous. And so they weep because to them it's equating the fact that God maybe isn't with them Maybe in a sense, he's not with them in the, the visible form that he used to be in moments. But as a result, they see this new temple as nothing. Zerubbabel's temple was puny compared to Solomon's temple. And Charles Spurgeon kind of draws out from this, this personal application. Because here's what I don't want to happen with this text. And there's some complicated parts of this text. I don't want you just leaving with a good understanding of the text. I do want you to have that. But there's this substantial application to your life from this text and mine. God's word is going to come to bear in a particular way where you have to think through, like, how does this apply to my own heart? One of the ways I think it should apply is we think about our own temptation to compare, compare the relative glory of, of our work and the work of God in us to other, to other people, other forms of his grace. And Charles Spurgeon puts his finger on this temptation this way. I think there's a quote I'll have up here. He says this, says, the smallness of our gifts may be a temptation to us. The enemy contrasts our work with that of others and with that of those who have gone before us. We are doing so little as compared with other people. Therefore, let us give up. We can't build like Solomon. Therefore, let's not build at all. Yet, brethren, there's a falsehood in all this, for in truth, nothing is worthy of God. The great works of others and even the amazing productions of Solomon all felt short of his glory. But ultimately, it's not the size of the offering, but the heart of the offering that matters, right? The sacrifices of God, you see this in Psalm 51, is a broken and contrite spirit, and those things God will never turn away. And you might be tempted. You might be tempted to look at your own life and just think comparatively compared to others, however you might gauge that comparison. Like you just don't, you don't have anything to give. Or maybe you even become jealous of like the expression of grace in someone else's life. Like, man, I wish I could do that. I wish my ministry could be this. I wish I sounded like this. I wish I looked like this. I wish I could do that. We all 
struggle with comparison. But ultimately, the glory of any version of the temple is never based on the stature, materials, or size of the temple. The glory of the temple comes from the God of the temple. Here's my encouragement. You see this temptation in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is that when we see in the church of Christ, like believers together in a family, like we are tempted to compare the deposit of God's grace in our lives to that which is given to other people. So much so, like a human body. It's like the hand says to the eye, like I don't have any need of you. Or the hand says to the eye, or eye to the hand, like, well, because I'm not a hand, I guess I'm not really any good to the body. That's the picture that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. My encouragement to you is God has given you. He's, he's given you grace to steward that's unique to you. Don't get bound up in comparing degrees of grace and glory in your life that you find yourself not working and building your life and making progress in your faith. Because somehow you want it to look or feel different. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That God has assigned to each one, according to his grace, gifts. A deposit in your life to be used for his glory and ultimately for our joy. But the Lord commends his people to continue the work of building the temple. He says, be strong, like work, fear not, I'm with you. So be strengthened by God's presence for today. And he says it three times to all three parties, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Work, I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst. Don't be fearful. Keep working. And this promise of God being with us is all throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament But I want you to remember something. This message is coming to a people who for 14 years have been in a basically varying degrees of spiritual neglect. Okay? So you could say that as a result, they're in various degrees of spiritual disrepair. And one of the effects of distancing yourself from the things of God, from the people of God, from the word of God, is one of the things that will happen is you will feel subjectively a lack of nearness to God. He won't feel like he's with you. Even in the process of rebuilding, there will be waves of like, I just don't feel, I don't feel him near. I don't see him with me. And God's promise here, one of the primary ways this is a ministry to us this morning is to hear the same words, like be strong, like be strengthened. This isn't just like, Hey, tomorrow, tie your boots a little tighter, get up and just be strong. No, it's be strengthened. Take courage. Why? Because God says, I'm with you. You pursue me, I'm with you. You seek to rebuild based on spiritual priorities, I'm doing the building with you. Be strong and get to work and don't be fearful. But spiritual neglect has consequences. And in God's kindness is a good father. Please hear me when I say this. Like, it's good of God, as uncomfortable as it is, to show us how fruitless and joyless life is without him. If you seek to pursue the things of the world apart from God, assuredly, God in his kindness, if you belong to him, will demonstrate to you how joyless and fruitless life is apart from him. And he is good to do that. He's gracious to do that. You see that in chapter one, right? Haggai's like, man, you got 
You've got all these clothes, but you're never warm. You're doing all this sowing, but you never harvest. All this food, but you're always still hungry. Drink, just drink and drink, but you're always thirsty. All because all the things they were doing were apart from nearness to God. And even times we feel and we see the hand of God actively opposing our efforts because all of our efforts are done in neglect to him. So in the process of restoration and rebuilding, there's still moments where we feel the distance from God, but the encouragement is just take heart. You may look around and nothing gives you a sense of optimism or hope. Some of that's because your own choices, my own choices, the distance from God that we feel. And God's message to you is be encouraged. You fear me, obey my word. You can be encouraged. I am laboring with you. I am with you. My spirit is in your midst, as it were. Don't be fearful. Keep working. Keep building. Keep making progress in your pursuit of the things of God. Take courage. I'm able, and I'm with you in the work. So there's a present daily courage we can gain by remembering the promise of the presence of God. Like fear must flee because God is with me. And as New Testament believers, like we know this even more so than the Old Testament saints. Why? Because Jesus said multiple places, one of them is in John 14, as his disciples were just sad about the fact that he was talking about leaving. He's like, what do you mean you're going to leave? And Jesus, amongst amongst other things that he says, like, hey, it's, it's good for you that I go. It's for your benefit that I leave. Because when I leave, I'm going to send the helper, the Spirit of God, and he'll be with you forever. And so principally as believers, New Testament believers, we have the Spirit of God within us that is truly not just the power of God or presence of God among us, but within us. John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus says, and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I want to encourage you with something else here, just as a brother and as a pastor, because the work of spiritual growth and progress, it is strenuous, it's hard, and sometimes it can seem really slow. But here's the encouragement. It's like when you know Jesus, the completion is certain. Like he will finish the work that he started in you. The promise of him laboring with you is the promise that he's going to complete what he started. Philippians 1.6 says it's just like this. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it until the day that Jesus returns or he brings you home. Anybody encouraged by that? Can I get an amen in here? That's good news because like we can look at our lives and be like, man, this is just, it's really hard to follow God. It's not always easy to believe God. It's not always easy to follow him. And sometimes the progress seems really slow and incremental, not as much as we want. But be encouraged. Like part of God's promise that he's going to be with you is that he's going to finish the work that he started in you. And praise be to God for that. 
He is perfect at finishing what he starts. So we can have immense encouragement. So be strong. Be strengthened by God's presence for today and be strengthened by God's promise for tomorrow. God points his people to a future moment, a future glory that will exceed the former glories. Go back to verses six through nine. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will. So constantly, like, I will, I will, I will, it shall. It's like this forward-looking posture. So don't look behind you. Don't even look around you. Look forward. Be strengthened by God's promise for tomorrow. In a little while. This house, God is going to shake. And so there's a literal way he's speaking of the house, this temple being built by Zerubbabel. He's like, hey, even though this thing looks puny, it's actually going to exceed the glory of the one that you saw. So we have to do a little bit of work to understand, like, what does that actually mean? There's a couple ways I would say this is fulfilled. It was Zerubbabel's temple, albeit a restored version, that Jesus walked into when he came into Jerusalem. So that temple, although it was desecrated somewhere around the second century BC by Antiochus Epiphanes, it remained in enough form for King Herod, Herod the Great, to to build it back up to its position and glory that it had when Jesus walked into it. Why is that significant? Well, the first time Jesus came, he shook the heavens and the earth by his arrival. So if you can just use your imagination for a moment. We're not there, so we can't feel the significance of it. Some semblance of the same temple that's being built in Ezra that we hear Haggai talking about, some semblance of that that was remade and improved by Herod is existing when Jesus comes on the scene. So the angels announced when Jesus comes, one of the many things they said about him is he's peace among men, right? The Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9, he has arrived. And so when Jesus' first footstep into the temple, you could say that temple is filled with peace because peace in human form has arrived. The Prince of Peace walks into the temple, the very place that's meant to point people to him, he's now come. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus when he was a little younger into the temple, it was Anna and Simeon, if you know that story from Luke, who were waiting for the consolation and redemption, the Messiah to come, and Jesus comes, and what do they do? They worship. Like, I'm okay to go home now because I've seen God's salvation. In that sense, Jesus shook the heavens and the earth. And when he, when he encountered the self-righteous who professed God with her mouth and whose hearts were far from him. He shook the paradigm of what it meant to, to live for and in the kingdom of God. We'll see that as we journey through the book of Matthew. It was this temple that was shaken when Jesus was crucified. 
You know the story at the end, the, the curtain in the temple, this curtain, this massive curtain. It was like a visual depiction of the separation between the presence of God and man. That temple and the, and the curtain was torn from top to bottom and the whole earth shook, demonstrating that through Jesus, men and women now have free, full access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus shook the heavens and the earth at his first coming. And Jesus even said it this way, Matthew 12, 6. He's talking about, he's trying to get the attention of those religious leaders and others who were kind of bound up thinking about the law and the Sabbath. He tells them that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for him. Like he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. But he also says this, he talks about the temple and he says something greater than the temple is here in Matthew 12, 6. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Like, and there's, like the people around would have seen the temple. It was beautiful. Some even said it looked like on the Temple Mount at the time that Jesus was alive. It looked like a, a mountain with snow on the top of it because it was so shiny when he entered the city. So you look at it and you see the disciples like, hey, this place is beautiful. Look at all these stones. And Jesus is like, hey, something greater than the temple is here. And it was him. Like he was, it wasn't just his glory that filled the temple. He was the fulfillment of the temple. Like he was, he was the one in whom the glory of God dwelled in bodily form. He called himself the temple. He's like the old, the old brick and mortar gold one. Like that all just pointed to me. Like I'm the greater temple. And you might recall Jesus said, hey, you tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And so he shakes the heavens and the earth through statements like that. It's like, tear, like, tear the temple down. It's taken us decades to build this temple. But now Jesus was talking about his own body. Like, you, you kill him, you kill his temple, he's going to come alive again in three days. And family, that shakes the heavens and the earth. That message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen shakes the heavens and the earth and demands a response from every single one of us. Because like we preach at Easter so boldly, Resurrection Sunday, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It demands a response from all of us. But Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. And we see in John 1, the word became flesh. The word speaking of Jesus became flesh and dwelt. That word is literally tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was the fulfillment of the temple. He was the something greater. When Jesus came, he came as a living tabernacle. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus ushered in an unshakable kingdom. It's the last thing I'll share. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's the only place where the book of Haggai is quoted in the New Testament. So it feels like a disservice not to bring it into view. And this is what I'll finish with. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read just a couple of short verses. But basically, there's a comparison that's given at the end of Hebrews 12. And you can read it verses 18 through 29, maybe later. But the, the main picture is this. There's two different mountains that are talked about, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. 
If you've ever read the book of Exodus, you can read it, the latter part of the book of Exodus. Mount Sinai, the glory of God dropped onto the top of Mount Sinai. But here's the deal. Those who were there couldn't come close. In fact, if you came close and you touched the mountain, you'd die. Or your animals. So God speaks, and the heavens and the earth are, sh- are shook. There's earthquakes, and it's a crazy scene, and lightning, and trumpets. It's wild. And, but nobody can come close to Mount Sinai. And the writer of Hebrews says, but there's a different mountain that we come to, Mount Zion, which is, this, which is where the temple would have been. And we come to Mount Zion, ushered in by the blood of Jesus that allows us to enter in with freedom. There's this bold access to God. And the picture is this. Mount Zion is a little bit like the blood of Abel. I know it sounds weird, but this, the story in Hebrews 12 talks about Abel. So Cain and Abel from the book of Genesis. Cain kills his brother Abel. And it talks about the blood of Abel. And so the blood of Abel, if you can think of it this way, the murder of Abel, his blood cries foul vengeance. There needs to be justice because of murder. Okay? And so Hebrews 12 says, Jesus's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's a little bit like this. The blood of Abel, you could typify that as sin. Sin says, there has to be justice. There must be vengeance. It has to be paid. That's a little bit like Mount Sinai. Don't come close. You'll die. You don't have access to come to a holy God. But because of Jesus, Mount Zion is different. Because Jesus says justice has been paid through my sacrifice. Now you can have mercy. Now you can come near. And in verse 26 and 27, it says this. Verse 26 to 28. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's the quote from Haggai. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Before we get set to take communion, there's just two quick questions. When your world shakes, where do you go for security? When you think about your life now, circumstantially, you think about all the days past that have led to your today. When you feel shaken, you feel the ground, as it were, shaken beneath you, where do you go for security? And the second question is related. Ultimately, and in the final analysis, when the heavens and the earth shake at the second coming of Jesus, what will you find yourself standing on to give yourself security? Because that's really the picture here. That every other effort, every other created thing has been disrupted by an unshakable kingdom that's been ushered in by the person and work of Jesus. If you stand on anything else, it's shakable. If you stand on him, he's unshakable. Stand on him today.